Now, those that uh, have been regular attenders at this congregation for the last decade will know that for, I think, for the last eight years, I've been slowly working my way through the Acts of the Apostles. And uh, in August of last year, we looked uh, at uh, the first 17 verses. And uh, exactly two months ago in November, we went through these same verses, verses 17 to 38, and we looked at Paul's, uh, Paul's method, his uh, motive, and his message. And um, Josh has given us a great introduction to the life of the Apostle Paul. And Paul was converted about three years after the crucifixion. He was a Jew and he was born in what is now modern Turkey. And he's converted and he changes his name to Paul, as is recorded in Acts 9.15. And there it tells us that Paul has been set apart by the risen Lord Jesus Christ as his chosen instrument to proclaim his name to the Gentiles, to their kings, and to the people of Israel. And with Barnabas, Paul's a teacher at the Church of Antioch for about five years, and after a prophecy by the Holy Spirit, Paul and Barnabas set out on their first missionary journey in about AD 48. And uh, that first missionary journey covers about 1,200 miles over a period of about 18 months, and it's in Turkey. And they go uh, town by town, city by city, preaching the gospel first to the Jews, and if the Jews reject them, then to the Gentiles. And then... Uh, starting in AD 50, there's a second missionary journey taking about 2,800 miles uh, over three years. And it's a circular journey like the first one, starting and ending in Antioch in Syria. And it's described in Acts 15:40 to Acts 18:22. And Paul at that time is with Silas, Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, and Timothy. And then starting in spring AD 53, Paul is on his third missionary journey and he covers about 2,500 miles, about 1,300 miles of that overland and about 1,200 miles by sea. And it takes about four years. And again, as recorded in Acts 18.23, he starts in Antioch in Syria and this missionary journey ends unexpectedly in Jerusalem in Acts 21.16, probably in May AD 57. Now, on this third missionary journey, Paul revisits where he has been before and he strengthens the churches that he's established, uh, first of all, in Galatia and in Phrygia. And then in, the back, in late AD 53, Paul arrives in Ephesus and he spends a significant part of his whole ministry there, about three years out of a 10 out of the 10-year period of his missionary journeys. And this long stay in Ephesus very probably led to the establishment of the seven churches of Asia that are recorded in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And the net result of Paul's work in Ephesus is that the church in Ephesus becomes the number three Christian church in the world after the church in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch. And he does this, he establishes this significant centre for Christianity against continual and uh, hard opposition from unbelieving Jews. And now, 
the year May AD 56 to May 50, AD 57 was a very fruitful year for Paul. He wrote 1 Corinthians from Ephesus in early AD 56. And then he went on to found a church in Troas. At Philippi, he wrote 2 Corinthians in October 56. And later in Corinth in the winter of AD 56, he wrote his epistle to the Romans, perhaps the greatest letter ever written in human history. A letter that transformed the last 500 years of Western civilization, sparking both the Reformation and the Renaissance that followed it. And it ushered in our present scientific and technological age. What a letter that was, speaking about the grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we come to Acts uh, chapter 20, verse 16, and Paul leaves for Jerusalem. And he wants to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost, which that year, AD 57, was May the 26th. So he sails past Ephesus, even though he knows loads of people there. But nevertheless, he wishes to speak to the elders of the Ephesian church. So he has them meet him 63 miles away in the port of Miletus, which is just there on the map, just south of Ephesus. <clears throat> and he speaks his last great message to the Ephesian church, to people that he had worked amongst for three years. And he talks about his time at Ephesus. And last time in November, we looked at three points, Paul's method, his motive, and his message. And Paul's message was that he taught all ethnic groups in the city, didn't he? Both Jews and Greeks, he taught everybody. He taught publicly, he taught from house to house, aiming to reach everyone with that same message of repentance. And it was a ministry of very personal care at great cost to himself for the benefit of the church and the unbelievers in that city. And what was Paul's motive for all this hard work? Well, we saw that since Christ loves the church, so Paul, sharing in Christ's love, also loves the church and works tirelessly and sacrificially for the church. So Paul's motive was love. What more noble a motive can you have for what you do? And what was Paul's message? Well, it was a message of repentance by faith in Jesus, who is God and has bought the church with his own blood, paying for our sins by his death in our place on that cross. This was Paul's message to the Ephesians then, and it is still the Bible's message to us today. Do you believe it? That a man, Jesus of Nazareth, is God, and that he came to pay our debt of sins, a debt that we cannot even hope to begin to pay ourselves. Well, that was last time. This time we shall look at Paul's four warnings to the Ephesian church elders. Now, uh, why do I keep mentioning places and dates? Because this is history. It really happened to these people then and there. It is historically 
objectively true and we should believe it. Right, so what is a warning? What's a warning? Anybody? Do you know what a warning is? No? Sam? No? No? What's a warning? Anybody? Wolves. Yeah. What's the dictionary definition of warning? What does the English word warning mean? Yeah. It's cautionary advice. Or it's advance notice of something. And what, are, what warnings do we see all the time as we travel around? Yeah, we, we see traffic warnings, don't we? We see roadside warnings. And what are roadside warning signs for? They're to help you navigate the road ahead safely and successfully. Does anybody know uh, what this sign is? Peter, what's that sign there? You see it? A hill. A hill. It's a very steep hill. It's an 18% grade, gradient. And it's a cautionary advice to help navigate the road ahead. Now, uh, a 16% or greater gradient is very challenging for all bike riders of all abilities, or so I read. And uh, does anybody know what this means? Well, in English it means increased risk of falling for cyclists. It's giving you advance notice of something ahead. And the next one, Gutskafabi Nessa means slippery when wet, right? It's cautionary advice to help navigate the road ahead. Now, I didn't know all these German words when Pat and I were in Austria this July. So I carefully looked them up in my English-German dictionary, my Deutsche Englische Wörterbuch. And then, fully understanding them and having for seven years done mountain biking on the very steep and rough tracks in Greece, I carefully went ahead. And as I rode down the bone-dry hill, fully under control, equal pressure on both brakes, suddenly my nose became itchy. <coughs> and without thinking, I just rubbed it like that with my right hand. And that instant, and the instant I took my hand off the front brake, I did a perfect somersault, head over heels, my bike landed on my left hand, and I landed on my bike. I was uh, severely bruised and uh, had a broken finger. I don't know if you can see on there, but if you get up close, that is really badly bruised. And um, I didn't discover I had a broken finger until after cycling a further 25 miles to the next town. Anyhow, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Now, warnings don't mean don't do it. They just mean take appropriate care. So the lesson is this. Warnings are cautionary advance notices of something ahead. But even forewarned, experienced travellers may encounter difficulty 
as I did on the 17th of July this last year. So look, let's look at the four warnings. Well, the first of all, there's going to be trouble ahead for Paul. Verse 22 to 24. Paul's path ahead is strewn with difficulties. In fact, just as was his path behind. And Paul says to the Ephesian elders in verse 22, Now, bound in the Spirit, or compelled by the Spirit, I am going to, Jeru going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. He's going to be bound up. He's going to be in chains. He's going to be in difficulty. The Holy Spirit has been warning Paul about the current situation. He wanted to prepare Paul for what was ahead. And the Holy Spirit has also been warning the churches in every city what is going to happen to Paul so that they too know what to expect. And Luke wants his reader to know that what was going to befall Paul was not a surprise. It, was God's it wasn't God's plan gone wrong. It was actually God's plan in action. Now, Paul, as he says in verse 23, he knew the outline of what was happening, but he didn't know the details. But Paul went ahead knowing there's difficulties ahead. He did not expect to avoid the difficulties, but to go through and experience the pain of them, even if it would ultimately cost him his life. Verse 24, he says, I consider my life worth nothing to me, my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So Paul was committed to preaching the gospel no matter what the personal cost. And this is what was compelling him in his own spirit, verse 22, not the Holy Spirit. He then went ahead knowing the cost. He went ahead despite the personal cost just as the Lord Jesus himself did when he went to the cross. Paul did this for Christ, for the church, for love of Christ and love of the church, and also to preach to unbelievers who might therefore be saved. Paul went ahead knowing that Jesus Christ would be with him, just as Christ was with the disciples in the storm at sea. And that in his difficulties, Jesus Christ would uphold him. So that's the first of the four warnings. There's trouble ahead for Paul. And the second warning is to the elders, the Ephesian elders, take heed to yourselves. And I put a similar slide up when we were in Kefim Lee, actually. Put your oxygen mask on first, is what the Apostle Paul is saying to the elders, and then you are in a strong position to see others. Eh? What, what happens if you uh, put somebody else's oxygen, you're on a plane and uh, it loses the air pressure? What happens if you start putting other people's oxygen mask on them first? Eh? 
what would happen? You'll pass out. And you may not even finish putting the oxygen mask on the next person. The only sound strategy is to put your own oxygen mask on first and then you can help others. And you can't help yourself if you're not in Christ. You've got to be in Christ yourself. And so my question to you this morning is, have you repented? Are you connected to the Saviour? Because that's where it all starts. And this is what getting your own oxygen mask on means. It means a living, saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, Paul had personally met the raised from the dead, Lord Jesus, uh, as we saw on the slides this morning that Josh so helpfully put up for us. And as Paul so eloquently records in his first letter to the Corinthians and is written about in Acts chapter 9. My question to you is, have you met Jesus? Do you have faith that Jesus' death on the cross pays for your debt of sin? Have you met and trusted Jesus who is God? Is that the most significant relationship in your life? It was for Paul. Or does your uh, mobile phone matter first and foremost to you? Is that the most significant thing in your life? Your connectivity to social media? But Paul, in verse 21, says that, that his message is for you. It's for everybody. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says this message is for everyone. It's certainly for me, and it is also acceptable for you too. Repent and have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, before you can help anyone else, you must first be in Christ. Only then can you be any use to anyone else in the church. You can't help others if you are not feeding off Christ. Now, some people think, you know, it's a selfish thing, you know, to take care of myself first. But actually, it's common sense, isn't it? And it's practical. And that's what Paul says to the Ephesian elders. Make sure of yourself first. So uh, here's the question for you. Do you take heed to yourself? Do you, first of all, pray by yourself? Do you pray for yourself? Do you pray for forgiveness for, your strength, for yourself? Do you pray for spiritual strength for yourself? Do you pray for understanding and for wisdom to apply it all? Do you pray for yourself? And do you pray all this for others? This is an application for all of us, not just for elders in the Ephesian church. Most of us are leaders in one field or another in some part of our lives, aren't we? Maybe you're a father, maybe you're a mother, maybe you're a Sunday school teacher or a children's worker. All of those whose responsibility is the spiritual nourishment of others. 
right? And that covers an awful lot of us here. How do you build yourself up? Have you built yourself up? Are you building yourself up? How does an athlete do it? Eh? How does an athlete do it? Well, they do two things. It's diet and it's exercise, isn't it, for an athlete? Yeah? They have the correct diet. What's the correct diet for us as Christians? Bible reading, prayer, sermons, books, both biographies and ex expositions. And you, your study needs to be on themes as well as on consecutive reading. <laughs> and you've also got to keep off the wrong stuff. Don't feed yourself with the wrong stuff, wasting your time on worthless things. Athletes, uh, I don't know who the world number one's tennis star is at the moment. It's certainly not Andy Murray. Um, he's just uh, said he's got some hip injury that he might need an operation and he's pulled out of the Australian Open, hasn't he? But the number one tennis star doesn't just work on his serve and his forehand, does he? Yeah, the, the number one tennis star, He's got to have a good serve, he's got to have a good forehand, but he doesn't just work on his serve and his forehand. He trains himself across all disciplines to build strength in all muscles, to build endurance and stamina and speed. Don't be a one-trick pony, especially if you aim to be an elder of a church. You don't know what you'll be called upon to do to help build the church of Christ in the future. You don't know what challenges you will have to face. And remember this, it's a marathon. It's not a hundred yards dash. Stamina is required, not just a meteoritic burst of speed. So you must exercise yourself in prayer. You've got to exercise yourself. Not only are you dieting correctly, but then you've got to exercise. Exercise yourself in prayer, in prayer meetings, in study groups, in one-to-ones, preaching to the church as well as preaching to the unconverted, in open airs, in door-to-door, right tracks. Work with the young as well as the old. Mix with and learn from those who are more experienced and wiser. Learn from their good habits as well as learn from their mistakes. Most of all, learn from Jesus Christ by knowing what he did and what he said. You can't help others if you are not feeding off Christ yourself. Elders, take heed to yourselves. Look at Rome. This was the time of the Roman Empire, wasn't it? How did one small city conquer the known world? It's impossible, isn't it? If you've been to Rome, it's quite a compact city between the seven hills. How did that have an empire that stretched from the Scottish borders uh, to uh, Africa across uh, to the Parthian Empire. How did one small city conquer the world? Well, the Roman historian Livy 
said that in times of peace, they prepared for war. Are you preparing yourself right now? Are you, or are you just coasting along? Now, last Sunday morning, Keith Underhill exhorted us from Romans 13, awake. It's the time to wake from sleep right now. Whoever you are and whatever your position is, prepare yourself now for service to our Lord Jesus Christ. You do not know what the future holds and whether you will have the time in the future to do that preparation then prepare now and finally elders you know who did paul call for in acts 20 verse 17 who did he call for verse 17 it says for Miletus, he sent to ephesus and called for the Elders, elders of the church. Yeah, who came to the meeting in verse 18? They came, right? Elders, plural, not elder, singular. And this is a key fact and a big issue in churches today. They should have multiple elders in each church for continuity, for strength, for diversity of gifts. Iron, it says, sharpens iron. So one person sharpens another, Proverbs 27, 17. You need that interaction as an elder with other elders to keep you on your game, don't you? Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 10. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. When I fell on my bike, Pat was there. She helped me up. Right? It was great. And it says in verse 12 of Ecclesiastes 4, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. A church should have multiple elders who can strengthen, exhort, and cover for each other. Elders, says Paul, take heed to yourself. The second warning. <clears throat> and the third warning. Elders, take heed to the flock. Verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So we are shepherds over a flock. Now, what is the purpose of shepherds? Anyone? What's the purpose of shepherds? To look after the sheep. The purpose of shepherds is to look after sheep. Nothing else. Let's not forget, we are what our job is, aren't we? It defines us. You know, you go and you meet somebody. Oh, what's your name? My name's Fred Bloggs. Oh, yes. What do you do is then the next question. Oh, I'm a shepherd. Right? As elders, we are first and foremost shepherds of this flock before we do anything else. 
So, so it's worth stating, shepherds are there for the flock, for the good of the flock. Elders are not there for the good of themselves or to ride their own hobby horses. They're there for the good of the flock. Now, sheep are very valuable, particularly these sheep, because they've been bought at a very high price with the blood of God, it says in verse 28. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God, dying on that cross, purchased these sheep. This is not a bargain price, is it? They weren't bought at a knockdown price. God, Jesus Christ, paid top whack for these sheep, his own blood. These are expensive sheep. God cares immensely for the church. You should too. And sheep, you know, they've got certain needs, haven't they, sheep? And as a shepherd, you must provide for them. But there's a problem. Verse 29 to 31 talks about savage wolves will come in to trouble the sheep and they won't spare the flock. And Paul says, not only am I telling you this now, but I've been telling you this for the last three years. So what can the elders of Ephesus possibly do how can they be good shepherds to sheep in these circumstances? Well, they can look at the two great examples that has been set them about how they can look after the flock. First of all, they can look at the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lays down his life for his sheep. He was the servant of all and he died that his sheep may have life. Elders are to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a tough goal, isn't it? But Jesus, some might say, died once for all. He was in a very special position, being God incarnate. How can us mere men be good shepherds? Maybe the Ephesian elders said this to Paul, how can we be good shepherds in Ephesus today, all these years after the crucifixion, and in our different Ephesian culture, all these miles away from Jerusalem? Well, verses 17 to 28, which we looked at in more detail last time, tells us about this. Remember how Paul has lived these last few years in Ephesus? Look at his method. He gave himself unstintingly for all those in Ephesus, all ethnic groups, working himself hard for the sake of the flock. Elders, do the same for your flock. Remember Paul's motive, it was love. First, love for the sinless Jesus, who saved the sinner Paul. Then it was love for the church that Jesus bought with his own blood. And finally, love for the lost, that they too may be saved. Elders, you should love Jesus and love also those whom Jesus loves and gave himself for. And you have to remember the message Paul preached these many years. Repent and have salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Preach this same message and save yourself 
and others. And it's the very reason, I believe, that Paul speaks here in verses 17 to 38 so much about himself. And what he did in Ephesus, it's to remind the Ephesian elders of how they can be a good elder themselves in Paul's absence. And we should also follow that example. All of us who love the Lord Jesus, that is all Christians, not just all elders, we should follow the example. We should fulfill the task our Lord has given us. We should preach the gospel or at least reflect the gospel and represent the gospel to those around us, even at cost to ourselves for love of Christ, for love of the church and for the love of the lost. And we too can ourselves be a good example to others who follow after us. Verse 32. In doing so, you will have an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And as I read previously from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Elders, Take heed to the flock. And then there's the fourth warning. Maybe some of you have been looking through the text and said, I don't see Paul's fourth warning here. But there is a fourth warning. Danger, God is at work. Wolves who come into the church must also be careful. Why? Because God is at work in his church. If you are an unbeliever attending this church this morning, Beware, God is at work in his church. Now, three-volt batteries don't come with much of a health warning, do they? They say dispose of them carefully, but you can just drop in them in a bin at Tesco's. 240 volts AC mains power, you know, it comes with quite a warning about how you work with that. But most especially 11,000 volts AC those that work in electrical substations, we see them dotted around the city, don't they? They have, to be, they have to work mindful of the power that's been transformed inside those substations. And all those in a church have to beware because there are powerful forces at work in the church because God, the living God, is at work for and through his church. And there is no more powerful being in the whole universe than God who created it and sustains it. And he is working his purpose out in the church. Don't thwart him. Don't destabilize his church. Beware. And of course, this is the triune God that is at work in the church. Verse 28, we read about the Holy Spirit appointing elders to the church. And in verse 23, we hear about the Holy Spirit warning Paul and the various churches about what the future holds for Paul. In verse 28 also, we have Jesus Christ, who is declared to be God, who bought the church with his own blood. And it was he who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And there's God, isn't there, whom Paul exhorted the Ephesians for three years to whom we must turn in repentance. 
the triune God is at work in the church with a purpose. Do not thwart him. For God, the future is certain. And so for us, it is secure. As Paul says in verse 32, God who will build you up and give you an inheritance amongst all those who have been sanctified. God is working in the church for the church's benefit and to so bring glory to himself. Even if for Paul and ourselves, the path from here to there is hidden from us, it is not hidden from the Lord God. Take care. God is at work here. Work with him. Work for him and not against him in his church. So, Paul leaves them in tears because they will never see his face again. You know, partings, as Shakespeare said, you know, he said they were such sweet sorrow, but they're not always sweet sorrow, are they? Because here we see it's that sometimes they like our hearts being wrenched out from us and with tears and prayers they leave Paul. So we've had four warnings. Yeah, don't be like me, you know, and let the issues of the journey cause you uh, to momentarily forget the warnings because painful consequences can result. Through love, Paul was committed to the service of Jesus Christ, no matter what the personal cost. Does that describe us too? Even in principle, or are we too committed to our comforts and to our busy life schedule? Nothing surprises our God. Nothing happens outside his ultimate sovereign will. Do you see your life like that? As we face the new year before us and all the challenges and difficulties and opportunities that brings, we don't know what will happen to us and those we love. But we do know the one who sovereignly rules this wor world and who works in the church for its future. And we know the principles we should adopt in our service to Christ as we tackle the issues of each day ahead of us.